Thank you all for joining us. It's just such a difference preaching to uh, live saints than staring up at a camera way up there with an empty auditorium. So I know it's a little bit of a trial having the masks on the whole time. I can't wait to get up here so I can take off my mask. But So thank you so much. It's such a joy having you here. Our text this morning is from 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Spoiler alert, we will take two sermons to cover this text, next week focusing exclusively on verse 15. I'll probably tell you that again in the middle of the sermon. Here's our text we've been working through. Most of you know Peter's first epistle, and here is uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Let me pray for us. Take your word, Lord Jesus, plant it deeply in us, cause hope to burn brightly in us as we see you, love you, adore you, and know you. For your glory's sake, amen. Can you imagine this situation? You are attending a sporting event of your favorite team, Something good happens, and everyone is standing and screaming and shouting and clapping and cheering, and all of a sudden, over the public address system, the announcer goes, now everyone start cheering. And you're like, dude, we already are. Can't you see us high-fiving, shouting, screaming, and clapping? See, that wouldn't happen. That would just be plain weird. There's a sense in which I feel about verse 15 the same way. Peter writes, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Why does he need to tell Christ lovers, Christ followers to do that? it feels a little redundant like telling the fans to start cheering when they already are. These believers, for all we know, are cheering the Lord Jesus. They're delighting in the spoils of his victory for them over sin and death. If there's any doubt on your mind, go back to chapter 1, verse 8, where he observes... Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That this is 
the lives of the people he's writing to. How do you get more excitement than that? And yet Peter, nonetheless, exhorts them and us to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Why? That's the question I want to answer with you this morning. Why? I'll give three reasons. One, Christ is the antidote to fear. Two, we have an incessant instinct to self-rule. And three, Christ is the object of our hope. See, do you see, this, it feels problematic, doesn't it? Why tell Christians to honor Christ as Lord? Don't we already do that? Didn't you say that in your second membership vow? Do you now receive the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? You already did that. Why do you need to do this apparently on an ongoing basis? Number, here's the first answer. Number one, Christ is the antidote to fear. Peter is envisioning a situation where these believers will suffer harm for doing good, for living righteously, for following Jesus, for wanting to represent the Lord Jesus in everything that they do. Look at verse 13. He raises the question, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? The very framing of the question assumes this answer. As a rule, nobody, most people that know you, they don't have to be a Christian to like it when you do the right thing. You don't have to be a believer in God to acknowledge, hey, that was the right thing to do. Good for you for, 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 for doing, for obeying the law. But then look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The very temptation under suffering and persecution. Have no fear, nor be troubled. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. See his counsel. Don't fight back. Don't give in to the human weakness to resort to some sort of sin in the face of persecution. No, endure it. Stay the course. Suffer for righteousness' sake. It's always better than sin. Our forefathers in the faith, faith used to say, one ounce of sin is far worse for you than 10, 10, 10 tons of suffering. And he gives a promise. You will be blessed. The favor of God will be upon you. And people in their right spiritual minds will want that more than sin in the face of suffering. Peter's actually, it appears, drawing word, words from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. When he says, don't fear them, fear, uh, fear the Lord. Back in Isaiah 8, verse 12, God speaking personally to Isaiah, when there's a, a word out on the street that Isaiah has got this conspiracy because Isaiah is telling the Israelites, don't trust the Assyrians. And so God says, don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear, Isaiah, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. It, it looks like Peter's reached right into that verse and imported it into the situation of those that he's writing to. So what is the antidote to fear? Focus on someone else. Who? 
Jesus. How does Jesus banish fear? I'll just draw three answers to that question from other parts of the scripture. Jesus banishes fear by putting real harm in perspective. Do you remember in the Gospels, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. There are people who can hurt your body. They can't touch your soul. Jesus says, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's God. I mean, it's one thing people... The Christian hope is people can hurt your body. God is the one who preserves our souls irrespective of that. See, Jesus has already sworn to take the harm due your soul and body in your place on the cross. He's proven his commitment to your welfare by dying for you. By suffering for you. Peter's been already talking about that suffering at the end of chapter 2. He took the ultimate harm. He suffered the hell your sins deserved in his body on the cross. Okay, you can hurt my body, people. My soul is in the hands of the one who purchased it for eternity by his own suffering. This is one reason why in the book of Revelation, probably written to Christians who were suffering, you get these big pictures of Jesus, a big sovereign in control of human history, Jesus. Somebody said, what's the point of the book of Revelation? God wins. That's what people in suffering need to know. Second way Jesus banishes fear is he pours his love into our hearts. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So I'm fearing in my heart. What do I need manifested there? The love of Jesus. Come in. It has this power. When the love of Jesus come in, it displaces fear. Because it assures me the one who knows all things and controls all things has me in his hand. Fear has to do with punishment, John writes. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Okay, I'm fearing something. My fundamental problem is I'm not sure, I'm not certain, I'm not resting in the love of God for me. Come, Holy Spirit, manifest it in my heart. The point would be you can endure almost anything if you know you're loved. Third way Jesus banishes fear is he put, puts words into our mouths. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for their impending persecution, he wrote this to them, Luke 21, 12. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogue and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Because these followers of Jesus took seriously the call to make Jesus known in word or deed, they would pay a price. Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be put on trial. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So that's what's going on in this situation. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of uh, you, they will put to death. But you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. These are some of the ways Jesus 
banishes fear in our souls. Second question, We're, we are asking, why does Peter tell Christ lovers who've enthroned Jesus as Lord in their hearts, they've embraced him as Savior, why does he tell them, honor as holy Christ the Lord? Second reason, we have an incessant instinct in our hearts to self-rule. We crave self-rule. We crave autonomy. We're addicted to self-love, self-protection, self-promotion, self-trust. I am anyway. I don't know about you. The human default mode since we were banished from Eden is self-trust. Defend yourself. Trust yourself at all costs. So there is this defect in you that unless it is arrested, mortified, it will get the better of you in difficult situations. I mean, you woke up at this, this morning, if you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ, you are at war with sin. Sin's at war with you. One of the ways sin wants to rule in your heart is to tempt you to self-rule, self-determination, self-protection. Remember the principle we've seen from Genesis? For life to work, something must be killed. For you to experience the glory of life in Christ, you must be putting to death this temptation, this incessant proclivity in your heart to do it your way on your terms, in your timing. Even people who are religious are tempted to want God on their terms, not their own. Just enough God to feel good about yourself but not so much that you are absolutely abandoned wholeheartedly without reservation to the cause of God. You see that in your heart? It's in there. So no wonder Solomon tells us in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart over against what? Don't lean on your own understanding. Your heart's inclination is to trust your own understanding. Lean on your own understanding. No. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. That, that's really on par with what Peter is saying. You'll be blessed for suffering for righteousness' sake when you're being persecuted. And to make sure we get it, Solomon says in the next verse, be not wise in your own eyes. He's telling us that because that's our proclivity. That's the instinct of our hearts. Trust ourselves. Interpret on our own terms the way we see things. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. This is particularly tempting in life's extremes, both in plenty and pain. Self-trust. Self-rule. Self-determination. Self-promotion. Self-defense. For, for example... In plenty, Proverbs 18.11. That was in Proverbs two days ago. A rich man's wealth is his strong city like a high wall in his imagination. That tells you that the more wealth you have in this life, the more impregnable you feel as a human being. You feel you're above the law. You feel no one can touch you. No one can hurt you. This is what wealth tends to do in our corrupt hearts. Doesn't have to. 
You can be healthy spiritually and wealthy, but you heed this warning. Think about the warning that comes in the parable of the sower. The different seeds fall in different places. What happens to the seed that falls among the thorns? Jesus said, the seed that fall among the thorns, those are those who hear the word of God, but the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That's a warning to you. You've begun the Christian life. You love the word of God. You want to bear fruit for God. But you get rich. You get concerned with other things. The world begins to preach at you. And so in plenty, we're tempted to self-rule. Same for pain. I mean, isn't it true of us that in pain and suffering, we are drawn easily to self-medication in lots of different ways? All right, you don't, you're not sure this is true about your heart? Let me give you this test. Take the way you use money, your time, and your words. Do you meticulously, without fail, and diligently subject your use of those three things to the Lord's sovereign control. All the use of your money, the use of your words, how you use your time. Do you say, Lord, you want me to do this right now? Do you do that? And we have freedom in Christ to not obsess over that, but when we know this Jesus as Lord, we're pleased to submit everything in our lives to him. The fact that we don't is proving my point. We have this incessant thing towards self-rule. What's underneath it, though? Self-rule is really a fruit of something even worse, and that is unbelief. Unbelief. That's the idol driving self-rule. Meaning, when I take things in my own hands, why is it ultimately I do that? Because I don't believe God can run my life better than I can. That's what I believe. That's insanity. When I take things into my own hands, I don't believe God is good and has my best interests in mind. I just don't. What's the proof he has your best interests in mind? It's what Peter has said over and over again through the epistle. Chapter 1 Christ has redeemed you through his precious blood. His love poured out through his blood at Calvary, proving I'll take damnation. I'll take the worst for your sin that you might know my love in eternity forever. Chapter 2, 12, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the proof he loves you. The lengths he would go to bring you into relationship with himself to set you free from the tyranny of self-love. And then Jamie will be addressing this, I'm sure, in a couple weeks. 3.18, he suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. What was the cost? What did it cost Jesus to bring you safely into the presence of God? Suffering the unjustness of your sins in your place. He who had never done anything wrong. There is proof he loves you. There is proof he wants the best for you. It is his cross, his death. His sufferings. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son. Meaning God never should have given up his son for his enemies. Never. It doesn't make any sense. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things, arguing from the greater to the lesser? If God wouldn't spare his son, there's nothing else he wouldn't give you. That is good for you because he loves you. Third point, we're answering the question, why does Peter tell us and his readers to, to, to honor Christ, revere Christ? It's really, you hear echoes in here of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, you who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Revere the name of the Lord. This is, in a sense, a, a variation on that. Why does he tell people who already are revering Jesus to revere Jesus as Lord? <laughs> Third, because Christ is the object of our hope. Peter assumes people are going to notice the way you suffer, and they may ask you about it. Always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Next week, entire sermon on that. So I won't say a lot more about that this morning. Why does he do this? It's because one of the critical differences between Christianity and the Gentiles is Christians have hope and the Gentiles don't have hope. When Paul is writing his great defense of the resurrection, the absolute necessity of the resurrection, he basically says, take the resurrection out of Christianity. We're the most pitiful lot in the world. That's what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we hope in this life only, in other words, Christianity is just a good moral code, he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection is absolutely critical, central, uh, um, indispensable to Christianity. Because that is, as we'll see, our hope. Uh, let's see, who read it earlier? Was it Joe, our scripture reading, 1 Thessalonians 4.13? We grieve those who've died. We grieve, we sorrow when we lose loved ones. We grieve, but not as those who have no hope. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 12, Gentiles having no hope and without God in this world. It is sad, isn't it? You've probably been to funerals of those who had no hope. They are devastating to observe. People grieving, weeping, knowing, that's it, final. Never going to see that person again. It's over. No hope. People need hope. They want hope. And there is actually a secular version of hope in our culture. There's a secular version of it. Because it's really impossible to live without hope. Here's my sense of the secular version of hope. We have hope in the future because together, together, we can make the world a better place. Let's pull together. We believe in the triumph of the human spirit. Each of us has potential within to be a better person, and so we give it our best. We trust ourselves. We hope for a brighter tomorrow. You can do anything you set your mind to. There are elements of truth in what I just said, but just look at human history. This never happens. This never happens. You might wake up, uh, with a secular worldview and determine that you want to do this, and sadly, around the corner is someone who's going to destroy you for believing it. This never happens. It's sad. 
We can't blame people for wanting this. It's deep in the human spirit. So what is hope? You know the word hope is used 164 times in the Bible, split roughly evenly between the Testaments. Hope means confident certainty. A sure expectation, not like we like, I hope the Redskins win this afternoon. It isn't anything like that, where it's uncertain and you're just wishing. Biblical hope is confidence. It is certainty. It's often used synonymously with faith. Look how Peter began his epistle. Verse, uh, chapter uh, uh, 1, verse 3. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That tells you both that hope, faith, is alive in you and that its object is alive, Jesus. <laughs> and that's the reason we're confident. We have a, a certainty of a glorious future because that future is Jesus and he conquered the grave. <laughs> so Paul can say in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the certainty of standing in the presence of God because Christ is in you. He'll, start, he'll finish the work he's begun. <laughs> And, and Paul also speaks of the hope laid up for you in heaven in Colossians 1. The writer of Hebrews says we have an anchor of the soul. Hope is an anchor of the soul. In human life, where do anchors go? They always go down because by definition they are heavy because by definition they're supposed to grab the bottom of the sea to keep you from moving. Your hope goes up. It goes up into Jesus. <laughs> That's why we have hope. It's focused on a person, Jesus. What does this hope do in tragedy? I'll just illustrate it. Interestingly, TWA Flight 800 has been in the news recently. That's been my illustration long before it's been in the news. Some of you may not know that a plane took off in 1996 out of New York and soon after takeoff crashed just off of Long Island in the Atlantic Ocean. 230 passengers perished, including a young man named Matthew Alexander. What was he doing on that plane? He was taking time off from college to go to France to share with people in France his hope in Jesus Christ. Turned out he was the son of a PCA pastor from Florence, South Carolina. And so, so sorry, this is a little close to my heart. World Magazine reported on this and spoke to Matthew's father. And here's what Matthew's father said. As they talked about, talk with people on the beach near the crash site. His father said, for some there's hopelessness and despair, a cynicism about life. Understandably. Others are getting angry and bitter, wanting to fight, find someone to blame it on. Understandably. The big thing yesterday was passing out angel pins to put on your shirt to give you guidance. I told my children if someone asked them if they wanted an angel to guide them, just tell them you already have the Holy Spirit. We had a wonderful time worshiping with other Christians. It was wonderful to get away from the secular psychologist talking about grief and death. On the beach nearest the plane's resting place, 
Mr. Alexander asked a New York pastor to read from Romans 8 in young Matthew's Bible. They found it next to his body at the bottom of the ocean. He was probably reading it on the plane. <clears throat> at the heart of it, it's just the grace of Christ that gets us through it. He's there, he's sufficient. We gave Matthew to God as an infant through baptism. Now we've given him back to God again. He was God's to begin with. God just took what was already his. How do you handle hope and tragedy? Thank you, World Magazine, for reporting that. So I say to myself, if my hope is faint, what's the problem? I must have poor sight of the object of my hope. Christ must be dim. No wonder Peter tells me, keep exalted in my mind, my life, my thoughts, my affections, Christ the Lord. And we'll see next week how that affects our desire and willingness to share our faith. Next week's sermon. But what's the principle? It could be your Christ is too small. And the principle is what controls you is what's most real to you. So you're driving on the highway, there's this terrible accident, blood everywhere, cars banged up, you drive by, what do you do for the next five miles? You go real slow, you're real careful, you're very attentive, and that reality eventually wears off and you're back to driving like a maniac, or I am. Right? For a moment it was real, that affected the way you drive, and then it's not so real, and then you're back to not being so concerned. What captures the imagination captures the heart. What captures the heart shapes the life. Hope is a person. Jesus, he shows us the glory of God. He is true beauty in his presence. There is fullness of joy at his right hand, pleasures forever. So we have to enlarge this Jesus constantly, do we not? So let's remember who Jesus the Lord is. That Jesus as Lord means he's in control of everything. The Lord of providence. In control of everything in our lives. The Lord of providence. He's a, he is the source and giver of all things. He is the Lord of your provision. That's why most Christians thank him for their food before they begin to eat. Acknowledging Christ's lordship over our provision. Jamie prays quite often Thank you for our daily bread. Thank you for our jobs. That's an acknowledgement of the lordship of Christ over our provisions. And Jesus is the owner of all things. That means he's the lord of your possessions. Best of all, you, which he possessed with his own life on the cross. So it is no wonder, beloved, when we look at the Bible, we see the lordship of Jesus Christ declared over and over again. He is lord of all. He is Lord of all creation. 
He is Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of all glory. He's the sovereign Lord of history. He is Lord of lords, King of kings. He's Lord of life. He's Lord of the living. He's the Lord of all power. He's the Lord of all grace, the Lord of all peace, the Lord of all salvation. He is the Lord of the lost, the Son who came to seek and to save that which was lost, Lord of the nations, Lord of mission, Lord of his church, the Lord of truth, the Lord of wisdom, the Lord of judgment, the Lord of your life. Therefore, do you see why the Lord Jesus is the person you want to most? I think this is where Peter wants to leave us. The Lord Jesus, rightly seen, is the person you want to most, most adore, admire, and love. The Lord Jesus is the person you most want to please most want to imitate, most want to make a difference for in this life, most want to consult when you have a decision, most need more than anything else, most depend on more than anything else because he's better than life itself. And you and I have got to keep looking at this Lord until that controls us. Let's pray. Would that we, by the Holy Spirit, using your word, Lord Jesus, reveal you as most holy and Lord in our hearts. Oh, forgive us for how slow, dull, reluctant we are to do that. Draw us to yourself. Show us your beauty, your glory, your love, your kindness, your majesty. May we be smitten Say with David, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Oh, the name of Jesus, the name of all names, the name that is to us, salvation, life, hope, reconciliation, peace, goodness, our reigning king. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, my hope is 